0: From Deus, humanity-centered artificial intelligence, my name is Natalie Post, and this is the Human-Centered AI Podcast, where we talk with AI industry leaders about how they're bringing the technology into practice, elegantly, efficiently, and ethically. For our inaugural episode, today I'm joined by Dennis DeRuys, who is Head of Artificial Intelligence at Avian Amro's Group Innovation. So... Hey, Dennis. Great to have you here on the podcast.
1: Great to be here.
0: Before we deep dive and go into what the impact is of artificial intelligence on the financial industry, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and basically what what got you here?
1: So my background is that I'm currently leading artificial intelligence for ABN Embro. Um, I've only been doing that for about three months. And before this I've been with uh, with McKinsey uh, also for several years and before that I've worked at IPsoft which is a company that both does automation in uh, data centers uh, which I did not work on <laughs> and that works on uh, chatbots um, and there I was uh, globally responsible for their implementation. So it was a team of about 80-90 people, um, mainly engineers and, and project leads. So I've done a lot in kind of conversational AI but within the bank now uh, responsibility is much broader and we're doing topics that still vary from, let's say, NLP, to things with images, to things with uh, data ranges and just you know, large data sets, if we look at, uh, for example, fraud monitoring. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, I have no formal background in AI. <laughs> uh, I've studied chemical engineering. <laughs>
0: wow. But, uh, so, how, so how did you get into this space initially?
1: Um, yeah, <laughs> step by step, I would say. So I, I went from chemical engineering into McKinsey Digital, started mm-hmm. working on IT architecture topics. Um, and then I've always been active with IT and technology um, and so loved working on those types of topics. And so kind of when the opportunity came up to switch to IPsoft and work on the implementation of their chatbot, um, I still remember seeing this demo and uh, inputting, let's say, a page or two of text into this bot and then asking a, a random question about that text and getting the right answers. Like, how would I program this? <laughs> uh, so joining them was a great opportunity to learn more about that. And then when I moved back into McKinsey, mm-hmm. uh, it became a very natural fit to work more on uh, what we would dub there as advanced analytics. Yeah. And so within analytics, uh, I've done things like uh, uh, pricing optimizations with, uh, with machine learning, mm-hmm. uh, also operational optimizations for, let say, industrial parties, uh, worked on a chatbot for a telecom player. So it's been, and I'm you know, getting more and more in depth there. I think that combination then eventually gave me the, uh, the opportunity here to join at ABN as well, uh, which I think is one of the most exciting places to work on AI, given that we have kind of such an enormous amount of data, mm. uh, together with, I think, a, very, uh, a better and better everyday technology platform, and then also uh, a group of people that really wants to do uh, interesting and good things with this type of data. And think finally the, the challenge here versus kind of traditional tech companies <laughs> is that we, we have to be very responsible on what we do with this data. Uh, more than showing somebody advertisements. If we're going to make models that say something about somebody's mortgage or mortgage application, uh, we'd have to be very sure that we do the right thing. Yeah. Um, so it's a nice extra dimension that makes the work, I think, here at the bank. Yeah, uh, exactly.
0: Uh, yeah. So how do you deal with that responsibility?
1: Uh, so I think there's the personal and the, and the company aspect to it. So um, I'll start with a second. Okay. Uh, company aspect is very much that we have uh, rules and guidelines on what data we can use for what. Um, And that there is, let's say if I want to use a specific data set, every data set has an internal owner. I would have to go to that owner and explain like, hey, I'm looking to use this data for this application. I'm going to need it for this many months. Um, These are the outcomes we're trying to achieve and this is how we look at things like privacy, et cetera, et cetera, in the course of this project. And then on top of that, there's like a checklist for any privacy sensitive information, like how do we handle that? And then within the team, we have a privacy officer that is the kind of... Uh, well, so we'd call it the first and a half line of defense. Yeah. Beyond people that directly work with that help on the, the questions somebody would have, like, hey, can I use this data or not in this specific context? Okay. And so I think from a regulatory or like internal regulations perspective, at least mm. we're uh, quite strict on what you can do, can't do, when you have access, when you don't, and how long you would have access, for example. Uh, sometimes that's difficult as well. So the central team wipes all the data from our environment every ninety days. <laughs> yeah. um, but then we built it in a very reproducible way, so okay. that they could wipe it every week and we would still be okay. fine. <laughs> okay. um, and I think that's, uh, that's the interesting part on the bank. I think for me personally, um, whenever you start a project, there's something where you think like, okay, so what am I actually optimizing for? And I think um, within the bank, at least the people that I've worked with directly, there's this sense of, okay, we want to do good and right by our customers. And so one of the projects we're doing is that we're looking at uh, debt relief for people that get into a situation where they cannot pay their debts. Perhaps because they've become ill or they might have had an accident or something else could have happened. Um, And I think for these people it's very important that they get help on these type of issues uh, as soon as possible. Um, But it's also a very sensitive type of case. Mm. Um, And so we're using AI, at least we're building that right now, to automatically classify those requests and create the case and uh, so that the employees that are there can actually focus more on handling the case than on kind of the basic administrative work of the emails. Yeah. Uh, but the next step for us would be to say, hey, which cases seem very likely uh, that we would indeed give the death relief? Mm. And so we can pre-sort those uh, using AI, basically saying, look, the uh, expectation is for us to allow this request to proceed. Uh, but the ones where we say, well, this is something that we would likely reject, uh, we would actually not pre sort them, but we would give them to the humans yeah. in any case. So, if you do not help someone with that relief, it's a very big decision that mm. impacts lives quite substantially. So, I think, yeah, so the personal aspect is that when you set up a project like this, from a technical perspective, it's very easy to say, oh, this path is going to be the same for approved and denied. Mm. Um, but from a, from a kind of social perspective, we take a different approach and saying, look, the ones where the user benefits we can be less len- of, uh, more lenient on yeah. the uh, decisions we make and we might give this to somebody that just says yes this looks okay versus the one we are likely to reject say look actually let's not reject this let's give this to a human uh, uh, person in the team that will actually do the full case evaluation as it happens today mm-hmm. so okay. that basically whatever the outcome of the model is People are better off than they were before.
0: Yes, <laughs> very important. Yeah. Yeah. So, how are these use cases established within the bank? Where are they coming from? How do you initiate them?
1: I think this is an industry-wide problem. Yeah. Uh, one of the I think challenges so. I, I see as well. So, uh, the bank is a huge place, right? There's all the different departments, um, and so one part of it is, yeah drinking coffee with people, so to say, um, and making sure that you talk to people that might have challenges where we where, would where feel as a team or I would think that, hey, here is a place where AI could really make a difference. Uh, and very often you'll find that people are looking to work on some of these things. Mm. At the same time, I, I do think this is, a, is an issue in general because many people that are not specifically, let's say, in a team that works with AI, they are not familiar with what you can do with AI or not. And so they might say, oh, we have this perfect AI case and it turns out to be extremely difficult. Mm. And then there is these cases where people say, well, this should be impossible and it turns out to be relatively easy. Uh, And that's just because people in the business might not know how far we've progressed with either natural language processing or with image recognition or um, and with various of these different things. So for them, like this concept of like, oh, you can read emails and put them in the right box, that must be very difficult. And it turns (laughs) out that, well, actually that's give or take a few challenges is very doable, and so that's the case we've started. Yeah. Um, and so it's. Um, I think you still have to go out and find these cases, and the other part is you have to go out and educate people on what we can and cannot do, so that when they think of cases, they can come back to us. Uh, and it could be my team here with the AI lab, uh, it could also be different teams that mm. already do data analytics within the different business lines.
0: Yeah, so how do you deal with that education part? As in, how do you educate people with no formal background in technology on what are the possibilities of
1: AI? We do something very nice. Um, so again, I think there's the bigger bank framework, mm-hmm. uh, so there's lots of uh, trainings and introduction trainings. So there's for example something that is kind of big data for managers, big data for executives um, to get uh, a general feeling for what they could do with data and AI is part of that. Um, what we are building now is something where we take, so the we're going to dry run this with legal in a bit, um, and to have them build their own model. Um, and it starts very simple, where they say, well, um, if I need to recognize digits, let's say we could take the MNIST dataset, mm-hmm. um, I could draw something that says, well, you know, if the colors are mostly within this shape that kind of looks like a 7, it's probably a 7. Uh, and to actually have them draw this and then say, okay, so how well does your drawing score? And I'm, I'm sure they're going to get to 50 or 60 percent correct <laughs> eventually. Um, and then there is the aspect of saying, well, you know, we could go a bit further and let's say.'" You could say something, well, if it has a horizontal line in the top half mm-hmm. and a diagonal line, then it's probably a seven. Uh, and there's going to be lots of ones in there as well, but that's, um, that's an interesting aspect and perhaps they can score a bit better. And then we could say, well, look, basically we could have the computer optimize this automatically and have them do that themselves. So. I'm going to try and put lawyers in a situation where for two hours they need to do something in Python.
2: Yeah, wow.
1: And mostly they will just be pressing enter. But to understand for them like, hey, this works and this is how it works. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and to take away some of these misconceptions. So I think by extension, like one of those misconceptions is that when we built a model, uh, I've, I've had many people ask like, oh, so can we now run this next to our normal production system for the next six months? to prove that is you know the solution works mm. uh, the answer is of course we can um, but what if i train it on the data from a year ago and i virtually run it next to the system from the last six months mm. right we could have this decision in the next few hours yeah. we could know whether it's working or not working and these are very intuitive things if you're in the data science or in the ai team and very non-intuitive things apparently yeah. if you're if your responsibility is to make sure that processes are followed in a compliant way or that the risk is managed in a certain way for certain loans um, and so to, yeah, to make people see that and I think there is this opportunity yeah, but people shy away from showing people how it works and mm-hmm. they make these generalizations like oh you know there's these two boxes and this is how they work with AI um, and that also means that we don't give people the opportunity to actually really understand and learn how it works yeah. and so to get much closer. So I'm never going to expect a lawyer to program Python, but for them to actually see and play around with this a little bit um, makes a big difference in terms of how they will start to reason about these technologies.
0: Yeah, yeah. because you mentioned this whole black box for a second. Um, how do you deal with that black box thinking and um, yeah, explaining the output basically?
1: Yeah, um, so I think it depends on the specific case. Um, but in, in general, I think within a bank or within financial services, having an increased amount of interpretability or explainability for a model becomes important, uh, both because if you're making decisions and either you're showing them to an employee who will make the final decision or you're showing it at some point in the future, perhaps directly to a customer, uh, being able to explain that, hey, we approved this because of these factors uh, is, is very important, uh, both from explaining that. a customer, as well as saying to an employee, like, well, we have concerns about these three factors, but if you can look at those and you agree, then you can approve and otherwise you should probably reject an application. Um, So how do we work as a bank is we are currently, so I think step one is to make sure we understand that better. Uh, And so we're running research uh, where we're looking at, hey, can we build models uh, where we look for that level of explainability or interpretability, which I think is only one aspect of A number of things as a bank that we should work on Um, and where we're looking at cases where like hey your loan was a uh, let's say your your loan was rejected but if your income would have been this much higher or if your house you're trying to finance was this much cheaper or um, if certain indicators had a different value then this could still be approved. And you could even show that to the employee who then says, well, look, let's work on how we can make this financing work for you given those constraints. Yeah. Um, And that's something that's fairly doable. Uh, But disappointingly, there is not that much research on these topics.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And so we've become very advanced in making algorithms do all kinds of things. But explaining what happens has uh, has not always gotten that same level of priority. Mm. I think as we see AI moving into of much more real-life processes beyond let's say advertising and some some basic uh, text, uh, text mining applications uh, it's going to become a, i think a bigger and bigger topic
0: yeah. Um, yeah because where do you expect that research to take place is that more the academic side or government or business um, or all of them
1: i think it's going to be partly on the mostly on the academic side probably uh, also because we are still in a very fundamental stage of how do we do these things and I think once you get more and more of an academic body that, that shows like, hey, these are the different approaches, this is what seems to work, what doesn't work, in, as in kind of other technologies, you'll see that business will start to pick up and say, hey, we need you know, a certain level of interpretability. How do we then pick up that interpretability uh, from the current models we have? And they might look in scientific literature and say, well, there's these two or three things. And that is going to be something that we'll see translate yeah. into business. Um, and business might be kind of the, the, the spark that mm. ignites the research on the academic side. At the same time, I think many companies are not kind of don't have the body and are not large enough to say, oh, let's spend you know, 10 or 20 people full-time in a group on interpretability. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're like one of the global tech giants. But yeah, for a uh, like for a large Dutch bank, that's mm. a, a serious commitment already. Yeah. Um, and so you know, we pick our partnerships where we can work with universities. Um, But I think there's definitely a a real place for academia in this. Yeah. Um, And I think the role of the government is going to be to stimulate that to some extent. Mm -hmm. And of course to, um, well, stimulate could be in two ways. Stimulate could be, let's say, fund and make make academics interested in working on these topics. Mm -hmm. And stimulate could be setting certain expectations. And this is also happening to how companies can and will use AI. And if one of those expectations is that things need to be explainable to degree X, um, that means that you know, we're kind of forced uh, yeah. to work on this type of uh, this type of research as well, yeah. which I think is a good thing.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Because how do you see explainability in relation to ethics? Because AI ethics is a huge topic. Do you yeah. see it's a direct link, or do you see it as separate topics? From your perspective,
1: we we looked at the explainability almost as a subset of the of ethical AI um i think bias is another one uh, something that explainability helps you to pick up on but it's definitely its own topic um it's also a very hard topic like it's easy to remove a column that says gender uh, but it's not so easy to take that completely out of the equation as a model is very likely to that if it's uh, something that we use to segregate to deduct something like that from other parameters um and the third one is i think Uh, Also, something we work on now in the team is the stability and soundness of predictions. If I tweak my inputs a little bit, do I get a very different answer? Because then, even though my model might perform really well, uh, there might be people that are just slightly different and that get hurt by something like that. Um, It's also something where we work at models where we say, oh, rather than running a model once, let's run it a hundred or a thousand times, um, but with slightly different dropouts. and then. Uh, see like, hey, does this uh, prediction actually have a, a good mean and a low variability, at that point we, we believe, believe what the model uh, is predicting is probably kind of a stable prediction, versus if that variability is very high, mm. uh, we might come to the conclusion like, well, hmm, no, regardless of how high or low this score is, the variability is so large that probably the model is in a, in a space where predictions are you know, moving in various directions and we're yeah. less sure super interesting is that we've trained that on some fraud data and you can see that fraudulent transactions have much higher variability than non fraudulent transactions on average it's tricky as well so you can't say that everything with high variability is fraud and and vice versa but it's an indicator it's interesting to see how that uh, how that goes Um, so yeah how does it fit in within ethical AI I realize I'm not answering the question no don't worry Um, yeah I think we need to solve a number of these topics um, especially if you look from the responsible position that, for example, banks have, um, and I think to a big part it will come down to the people that are working with this and the choices they make, and the limits we set ourselves as a result. So we can, of course, uh, do amazing things if we say, well, let's not work on interpretability, uh, let's not work on bias, etc. Um, but then. I don't think it's future proof in the sense that of what we want to achieve with, these, with AI in the end. And so I think the context of ethics its something that is not just a technical solution. It's much more of like how do we train the people that work with it? How do we make sure that our models and our outcomes uh, meet certain criteria around fairness, around uh, bias in general, around interpretability, uh, around kind of soundness or stability of the predictions? Um, and that's going to be much bigger than just plugging in a technical solution.
0: Yeah. Because how do you bring out those capabilities within teams?
1: Yeah, I have a, I have a strong uh, opinion on this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I see that much, I think the traditional industry is has, has, has very much focused on saying, oh, we need data scientists. And so you get uh, fairly deep and sometimes narrow profiles where people are very good at modeling and, and working towards a certain fit. Because successful teams, I think, have at least some fraction of fairly broad generalists. So people that are comfortable modeling, but also comfortable working with data, but also comfortable interacting with the business, understanding, in my case, for example, how a bank makes money and how our business works and how we, know, what our mission is towards our customers. Uh, so that this kind of example of like, oh, it should just be four degrees higher, yeah. doesn't happen. Um, but much more that we're kind of in sync with the business. Um, and then I think the normal norms and values of the company come back. So um, if we are in the normal way of doing business, trying to be ethical in how we work with, uh, with our people or with our customers, then uh, by extension in such a team, we would try and do so in the AI side as well. Yeah. Uh, and put in normal guidelines that, that uh, make that possible. Uh, I think if you work in just in technical isolation, it's very easy to miss that uh, because there's this disconnect between you know, what ethics means in this business yeah. and pure data science that you could run on a cluster somewhere on your laptop, and, yeah. and that does a prediction and it doesn't feel awful wrong, but does not connect to kind of you know, what you want to achieve as a company.
0: Yeah, clear. And where do you find those people then? Because you mentioned quite the broad profile that you're looking for. I know that you're building a team right now and expanding fairly quickly. So
1: if if anyone is listening that has a background (laughs) with, you know, able to model, but also eager to interact with the business, doesn't need to be banking per se. Right. Um, But I think these type of broad profiles have broad experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think a subset of our team is we've had somebody that's with the bank for 25, 30 years. Uh, And in the last few years, I said, look, I want to do data science and has been reschooling himself, which I think is a very interesting setup for somebody that um, brings real power to the team in terms of knowing everything around the bank and then being at a certain level of data science skills. Uh, We have somebody in the team starting that has a background in building a sound startup. Mm -hmm. Some of us did some machine learning and AI but also is very much operational in making sure that certain things got delivered to certain customers, etc. Oh, yeah. uh, but definitely that entrepreneurial vibe uh, and has therefore sense of what it means to run a business um, and has a background uh, both kind of from the academic side as well as for the last few years working on artificial intelligence. And then we have someone in the team that has a background as a strategy consultant uh, for a few years and that then went into a much more academic type of side uh, of applied research. And then went into a starter where he was the lead on all the machine learning. Um, and then we were able to convince him to, to join <laughs> here. Uh, and so these type of profiles are, well, it's difficult to get them straight out of university because of that yeah. broad level of experience. Um, but I think that's, I think, uh, yeah, makes for very powerful people. Uh, and they are not going to be the deepest experts on specific topics. When I find someone that has spent the last eight or ten years of his life on just image recognition and only applied to houses, then that person is going to be much better at doing image recognition in houses <laughs> than anyone in my team. Yeah. Um, but my team tends to be is happy working on the things that are going to make a difference for the business within the next three months. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully afterwards as well, but uh, and I think so. that's a, that's a trade-off. Um, and that's where I stand now with the team. I think the vision further towards the future is that you'll see within the business line, so close to where the action is happening, mm-hmm. you'll see I think more of these the generalist profiles grow. Um, I think central teams, which is my team sometime down the road, might get more uh, more into specialization. Mm-hmm. Because when, the, when teams that are in various business lines are so good from a, hey, we can run everything end to end as long as it's not something very, very niche, um, but when it becomes very niche, we need a place to go to ask for that expertise. That could either be externally or that could be like the central center of excellence.
0: Yeah, yeah, clear. Yeah, because I mean, I think hiring is such a big challenge within the AI space in general. I think there are so many different profiles out there and so much need versus demand or supply versus demand. That's really um, a big challenge. But what are the other challenges that you see within the industry when it comes to AI?
1: Um, so I, I think a number of things. Um, one for me is this focus that has traditionally risen on modeling, uh, where, where this kind of implicit people think that modeling is the hard part of implementing AI in a company. Uh, and I think all in all combined, it's probably less than a quarter of the effort. Um, and so this concept of, hey, do we have the right data? Is that data available? Is it clean? Do I know how to work and interpret it? Uh, is also very important and it's something that is like, oh yeah, we'll get the data and then we'll go and do the modeling. And then eight weeks in, you finally have the data and it turns out the modeling is only two weeks of work. And then the other part is, um, if you look at this end-to-end perspective, now I have a working model that makes useful predictions. How, as a business, will I use this, let's say every day or in every process, that could use this type of prediction. What is the infrastructure that actually runs and hosts my model in a way that tomorrow and the week after, and the week after that, it still works? Um, and then all that combined, is still only the technical aspect. How do I make sure that actually the predictions are right and that the, that it's valuable for the business and that it's actually something that the customer experiences in a positive way? And so I think that whole end-to-end chain has an immense uh, amount of work yeah. and it's much more than modeling. And I think that yeah, If I look at, so more from the McKinsey experience, but if I look at many of the, the data science teams or the central teams that we've worked with, um, you you can typically see that they started off as in uh, modeling is the hard part, and then slowly expanding their scope. Uh, and very often the data and data cleaning part has become more and more important. I think also a lot of models have never made it to value mm. because of the second part uh, about going into production. Yeah, and so for example, I think there was an interesting article from Booking.com Uh, with, you know, the six lessons learned of, I think, 150 models in production um, and a bunch of those. So there's some some stuff that relates to modeling, but a bunch of those are really around, okay, so how do you properly design your experiments and how do you measure and value what your models are doing? Uh, Or how do you make this difference between model performance and business performance, right? Which these two, for kind of a basic assumption, sort of they are the same, but they are not. Right? I could have a model that doesn't perform as well. but by time to by improvements in time to market, or kind of how much easier and faster it is to deploy, might have a huge difference in terms of how much value I can get from that. And also to have AI or machine learning in, in their case as a, as an ingredient or I think the name is Swiss Army knife in yeah. product development. And I think this comes back again to having more people that know what AI is and how you work with AI. Because um, if you're designing new products and then bolting on AI at the end a very different thing than saying hey we have this thing called ai in our toolbox and if i design a product how can i already from day one use these things to, to make better products um, and so i think it shows interestingly that, that even for them right the, the lessons learned in, a, in a, well, an academic paper uh, relate a lot to kind of you know, how do we make business impact and business value and go beyond um, just modeling performance yeah. Um interesting to see how also kind of film, you know, and I think they are one of the leading companies in that sense that show this this difference between yeah just moving beyond just modeling.
0: Yeah yeah, you kind of touched on uh, the whole perception of AI as well. What are your thoughts on that? Because there's a lot of different interpretations of what AI can and cannot do, a lot of buzz.
1: There's there's definitely this aspect of people coming in saying, oh, the robots will take over, right? So we have this process now and there's all these different steps and we're doing all these difficult things. And there's, there's this whole team of people working on it. And there will be this artificial intelligence that will do this whole thing end to end and all these people will no longer have work, right? This this kind of vision of doom of AI taking over all the available jobs and there's one person in the end uh, that is responsible for all the AIs and he's the only one that still deserves an income. Um, And I think the reality is very, very far from that. Um, We've come to this point of AI that we're very good in very specific, narrow things. And so if you look at this case that we're doing with this uh, automatic classification of emails, there is like this 20 or 30 step process and there's a few steps that we think that we can do faster and better and cleaner with AI than um, uh, than the current process. And so those are the ones we decide to kind of support with AI. But then all the other steps, there's steps on on this personal contact or the steps on on, on you know, very impactful life-changing decisions for people where AI could help and support. But it's very much one of humans at the steering wheel, um, and that will stay for a long time. But I think this. For people not familiar with artificial intelligence, they, the uh, it's a misconception it's something when I talk to my parents, they see all the AI as the same. So the AI that classifies these emails is the same type of AI that would drive a car. <laughs> and uh, that's not the case, right? My, this AI, AI, quote unquote, can, class, can read a text and classify it as one of 20 types of email,
2: yeah.
1: period. It, can, it cannot drive a car. Uh, it, it can also not read other types of emails. It, it, this is what it does and it does only that. Um, and so, again, I think it comes back to the education piece. There's, yeah. there's a lot we can do, and there's, there's a lot and a lot of untapped potential. Um, and at the same time, um, I think, yeah, using the words artificial intelligence has, has led to this perception that it's this very broad type of, of uh, intelligence. And that's not something where we are. Yeah. Um, and something that we have to grow into. So I think um, we're working more or less, I think across the board, on four larger teams of AI that, that work and so one part is really around personalization uh, and I think a very good example is Anna, the chatbot that we have on our website. Yeah. Now Anna is some is a chatbot that you can see when you are logged in and that you can ask questions around things that you can see on that specific page and uh, we're doing hundreds of chats a day I think now and that's growing because the team is learning from basically we can see the questions that Anna does not answer and then we say hey there's a category of questions here." Uh, that we seem to get a lot. Uh, so let's actually put those answers in as well. And so that, that one is getting broader. And it works well. Uh, so well that now internally for our, our IT desk, we're using the same bot, uh, but then with a different training set, of course, um, to, to do that as well. And I think um, as we're going through these four things so on this first one around personalization and especially uh, chat, um, an interesting observation is that. Chatbots lead to uh, more interactions and more personal interactions, I think, with your customers than a typical FAQ page. Mm. But I think also, as, as at least I found out back in the time that I was working with IPsoft and also later in McKinsey, is that when you put a chatbot in and it takes 50,000 conversations in a month, that does not mean it reduces the number of calls with 50,000 a month, perhaps 5,000. Um, and that's, uh, uh, that I think that shows the ability for these type of tools. To, to have a much yeah, more personal interaction with customers, but also that customers, to some extent, seem to want to use this. And uh, so that the, uh, the number of contact points and the engagement seems to go up versus just having the ability to do a self-service FAQ or a uh, phone call. At the same time, if I personally, where I stand, I, if I'm going to interact with the company, I much prefer human interaction than mm-hmm. a bot interaction still today. But sometimes the bot interaction can be very fast and efficient and therefore still be a very good experience. Um, I think the second part, where what we're working on with AI in the bank, is really around uh, our ability to make better decisions. Um, and that means that uh, we have a lot of processes where somebody has to look at a, a large amount of data and then make a decision. And this could, for example, be a mortgage application. So you have to look at somebody's income statements, at the house, at the... Uh, and information the notary provides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of information and uh, every, given that same information to somebody else or to somebody else, they will follow the same instructions and there's even going to be a margin where people might have, hmm, I might have approved this and somebody else might not have approved it. I think so with AI, um, we are much more in a position to help these people go to this much larger data set and to distill the things that they really need to look at uh, and make therefore more consistent and better decisions. Um, a third part, and I think this is something you'll see at almost every industry that experienced AI, is around efficiency.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, the uh, case where we classify emails is an example of this, um, where it's really around we have a process that we think we can automate with AI tooling that we could not automate before. Um, and so, that takes administrative work mostly away. And I don't think, like for some time, it will not be a kind of very deep uh, decision level. Of, of support. I think the, the decision piece is really more advising people what to do. Yeah. Um, and I think the fir- fourth part, which could be a combination of those above, is making the bank safer. Um, and that ranges from using machine learning for uh, anti-money laundering or fraud detection uh, to, um, let's say, machine learning to identify phishing emails or spear phishing emails. Spear phishing is really tricky because it targets a specific person uh, but we can we can show actually that our models are sometimes better than the typical products on the market for this and then within that same bucket you can see this interesting part where right, it's somebody in a basement can train a model that could your voice uh, could transform that into the voice of our ceo uh, this is very tricky right and i think for the bank perhaps then it's Still something which I like we have very structured processes around this, but imagine this company with two hundred people and you get a phone call right you 're in charge of accounting from the CEO and it 's like he 's on a different phone number, but it 's definitely his voice right? and then he asks you to, to wire some money so this concept of fraud has existed for a long time over email or mm-hmm. text messages, but now it, it, you can do this with you know transforming your voice and I think it was a and Google blog, if I remember correctly, from just a week or so ago, yeah. that showed that uh, like with fairly limited uh, data, like literally a few minutes of spoken text, you could do these types of transformations. Um, and people said, well, this is really cool because you know, I could leave a message for someone on behalf of someone that was passed away, but with a kind of a good emotional memory, mm. for like his mother's birthday, I think, and his okay. father had passed away because of illness. At the same time, somebody will abuse this and, and yeah. do this type of fraud. Um, and so one way to protect yourself against this is to train people. Yeah. Uh, another way is to say, hey, can we detect these types of things automatically? Um, and so I, I would see this as one of the topics kind of in the Saver Bank yeah. at some point forward. And you can see this even in video right i mean it's possible but this whole concept of uh, putting somebody's face on somebody else's face in a in a video is kind of scary if you see how fast that has evolved somebody invented this and a year later it's everywhere and you have to change your processes basically saying look no the person actually needs to sign with his reader because we can't go from the voice or alternatively we need to have something that the text that a voice has been tampered with Uh, there's an interesting type of uh things that's happening there. Yeah. I think it's going to get more important as well as the kind of the other side of the security community is starting to <laughs> yeah. use this more and more.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think also a lot of organizations are popping up that are then detecting deep fakes or those fakes again. So it's like a bit meta in a sense. But
1: it's uh, a bit of a well, it's actually it's an interesting topic in itself is that I think the industry has been growing very fast. Um, and now we have this thing of no, a few people that say, oh, we can have a deepfake detector. And suddenly this is a company. Yeah. And so the amount of, kind of less than 10 people AI companies is exploding, at least in my perception. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them are selling a, a tool. right? We have one or two neural nets or some kind of model that we've trained that does A, B or C. Uh, that's what we sell. Um, and I think long term, yeah, a lot of these tools can be replicated. Um, especially if it's around huh? having or not having access to certain types of data. And um, so I'm curious to see what happens to those companies, whether they yeah. get kind of bought into larger companies, if they would grow a portfolio and at some point do become kind of more products than tools. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to see how this, yeah we have this market of a lot and a lot of small companies, both consultancies, and this kind of, oh, we provide a specific tool to do X. Mm. Um, And it's challenging for us as a bank, because
2: um,
1: the amount of governance we have on running and introducing new application uh, is quite serious. Um, Also because, of course, because of data access, and et cetera, et cetera. So if we introduce one of those tools, But it's like if we go to a whole suite, we have to do a certain assessment. If we do one tool, we have to go to a similar type of assessment. So it's not easy to actually work as a corporate with these small kind of very niche, single shell type of applications, Mm -hmm. even though they could be very powerful by themselves.
0: Yeah. So do you, how does this consideration take place then? Because do you actually work with some of those smaller companies and smaller tools? Or is this really on an exceptional basis?
1: I think at various levels. Mm-hmm. So we do proof of concepts, um, and this could be with smaller or larger companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think our chatbot, um, um, our for example, is one of the largest providers in the world. Um, then uh, at the same time, if we are very serious as a customer in using a tool, Uh, we also invest in those companies from time to time. So we have our digital investment fund. Okay. um, And so I think one of the, most of the larger, let's say, either data or AI or machine learning types of toolings uh, that we work with, we also, for example, have some some stake in that.
0: Okay, okay, clear, that makes sense. Cool. I think we touched upon a lot of different topics uh, so far. I think we did. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So maybe um, for the listeners to summarize it briefly, what are the key takeaways?
1: I think looking towards the future, I think so the one key takeaway is that we're doing amazing stuff at eBay and <laughs> um, but I think looking more forward, um, I think that there's a number of trends in AI um, and what I would expect and what I think is interesting to see is one this broadening of skill sets that you see in teams from very technical to I think much more business-savvy, much more across the chain uh, and bringing specialists where needed. I think there is going to be this expansion of uh, this technical view in the type of work as well to kind of taking a a perspective that also includes let's say ethics and bias, interpretability. Then I think there is this already happening trend and it will get stronger on taking this end-to-end perspective. On getting the data right, making sure that you have the right kind of uh, access layer for data, uh, the uh, the ability to have you know clean and annotated data, have data owners and governance, the whole set, uh, as well as you know f- uh, good platforms for modeling, uh, for model development, uh, but also for hosting of the models in production, and then evaluating and monitoring if they work properly, um, including this whole end-to-end view towards business value and how do we make sure that what we build is actually valuable and actually gets used kind of by the business on a day-to-day basis. And we will start evaluating, I think at some point in the future, the data teams for the business performance rather than, oh, have you brought this thing to production or not? Yeah. Um, I think a uh, fourth one is this aspect of data becoming more important. So even if you have the right tools and have the, the, the right governance and systems, uh, companies will be able to distinguish themselves or be better of either in performance or in how they're kind of perceived by the market uh, by you by having the right data and using that more uh, in a more integrated fashion and that could even be beyond the limits of a single company i could totally see the banks working together on non-competitive areas uh, to share data or to at least co-train models for example with fancy ways of not sharing data but still having that type of benefit uh, for example to prevent fraud because uh, if we work together to prevent fraud, then everybody except for the criminals is better <laughs> off. Um, and so th- th- typically one of those cases where it actually helps to be able to pull more of that type of insight together. Um, yeah, and then I think finally we'll see as we use this type of technology more and more in the business that the, let's say, non-techy people will start to get a better feeling uh, for what this is and how they can use it. And you'll see that successful people are able to really make AI an integral part of their part of the business and so i think we'll see in the leadership side uh, more and more understanding and more and more feeling for ai and how and where we can use it and therefore the number of use cases really to uh, yeah. to grow as well and hopefully in a more integrated fashion than this kind mm. of project by project type <laughs> of basis so I have, I have i have very high hopes but then i'm in a chair that is supposed to have very high hopes
0: <laughs> great yeah thank you the summary was perfect and thank you so much for your time happy to have helped great And that was it for our first episode of the Human-Centered AI Podcast. If you like this episode or have any feedback, do not hesitate and reach out to us at deus.ai. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time.